0: Welcome everyone to this podcast on suicide means restriction, brought to you by the Cochrane Common Mental Disorders Group and The Mental Health. I'm Andre Tomlin from The Mental Health and I'm your host. Over the next hour you'll hear a conversation with me and three suicide researchers and clinicians that took place at the end of 2020. Our expert speakers are Professor Anne John, Professor in Public Health and Psychiatry at the Swansea University Medical School, and also co-director of the Cochrane Common Mental Disorders Satellite, Dr Lisa Mazzano, Associate Professor in Psychology at Middlesex University, and Dr Dean Knipe, EBI Research Fellow at the University of Bristol. In this podcast, we will define what we mean by this difficult term, suicide means restriction. We'll present what we know works in this field, where the gaps are in our knowledge, and what the priorities are for future research. We will also discuss why it's so difficult to talk about suicide and explore how we can have safe and constructive conversations about suicide means restriction that involve all of the right people. We hope you find this podcast useful. Please tell us what you think. So I guess before we start, we need to say something about what we're gonna be covering in this podcast. Um, We're going to be talking about suicide. We're going to be talking about suicide methods and means of restricting suicides. So it's really important to say up front, uh, trigger warning. This podcast is not for everyone. Uh, It's going to have some difficult content, some difficult subject matter in it. Uh, And so we highly recommend, if you are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, that you think very carefully about whether you want to listen to this podcast for the next half an hour or so, you may want to turn this off and go and do something else. Um, This podcast is very much aimed at researchers and policymakers. It may also be of interest to a wider audience, um, but we think the core audience who will find this content interesting and relevant are those people, people who work in research and people who make health policy in relation to this field. So with that in mind, let's move on. Um, I'm I'm going to start by asking Anne, what is suicide means restriction?
1: So I guess suicide means restriction is is based on the fact that suicide is not inevitable. So if we can reduce the access to to lethal means, so how people um, take their own lives, then we can save lives. And restricting access to means is is based on the concept that for many people, there's a real acute period of risk. So, um, a good example of that for for suicidal behaviour. So, a good example of that was, say, someone with, um, there are usually lots of reasons why someone might take their own life, some of which um, are about. the way they look at the world, how they problem solve. Some will be about experiences that they may have had in childhood that may make them more vulnerable. But in that acute period of risk, it could be someone with some of those vulnerabilities or who has depression, who then experiences an acute, difficult life event. So a relationship breakdown. And at that point, if we make it difficult for them to access the means by which they could take their own lives. There's a chance that that their survival beyond that. Most of the evidence shows that it effectively saves their lives. So it it does. It's not that they substitute or they use another method. That acute intervention does help. So there's lots. There is evidence for means restriction. The other reason, the other thing that's important to say about it is that many people who die by suicide never contact mental health services you know if they many don't seek help at all and if they do seek help it's it's through friends and and family so a lot of means restriction where you're sort of you know the sorts of things we're thinking about as if you you stop access to firearms or put barriers on bridges they're universal interventions you know then they're aimed at the whole population that doesn't mean that means restriction doesn't work for high-risk individuals so you know we can we could remove firearms from people who present to emergency departments with suicidal thoughts or um, a piece of work that I was involved in we particularly looked at if someone presents with um, feeling suicidal, that we would look at what medication was there in their house. So if a young person presented, what what medication in their house that is is more dangerous in overdose would they have access to? So that's thinking about what you're prescribing them, but also what people in the household might be prescribed. Um, It also works in high-risk settings, so if you think about um, psychiatric hospitals or prisons, you know, you can put in things like collapsible shower rails or have, you know, safer cells that are ligature free so so it's really important that it works universally for the whole population, but it's also really important that that we look at access and safer environments in in high-risk settings. And the way you make um, means restriction work, you know, sometimes that's about legislation. So passing laws, sometimes that's about amnesties. So giving, you know, giving guns in households back. And sometimes that's about clinical practice, you know, asking someone about those issues. So means restriction is particularly effective when a method is widely used, where it's widely available, and it's highly lethal. And, you know, the, the three methods that dominate worldwide fulfil those. And so means restriction works at a population level to prevent suicide.
0: I want to bring in Lisa here and ask about what the evidence tells us about what what works. Before I do, Lisa, I want to also ask you to kind of set this in the context for us because people often say, you know, means restriction, stopping people from taking their lives is kind of ignoring the fact that there's all sorts of other things that we could do earlier on in people's lives and in society generally. So do you want to say something about that?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, lots of people would say that means restriction is an important, some would say even essential element of suicide prevention. But I think it is important to say it's an element of suicide prevention. It's not um, sufficient. Um, Ideally, we want to prevent suicidal ideation, not just suicidal behaviour. So it's very much in that context that we're thinking about it. And as Anne said, we're thinking about the moment of acute crisis And we know we have evidence that those moments can be relatively short um, and that delaying that moment can make a real difference. But ideally, we want people not to to be in that crisis in the first place. Uh, But when at that point, uh, the evidence tells us, I mean, this is one of the few areas where actually there's strong evidence of effectiveness. um, There are some caveats to that and there are some methodological limitations that I'm sure we'll come to. But broadly speaking, we know that means restriction works. Uh, We know, as Anne said, that it works particularly for methods that are um, quite common, um, highly lethal, uh, widely available and or methods that are not sort of easily uh, substituted by other methods. Um, and there are plenty of examples of that. Some quite powerful ones. For example, we know that when um, domestic gases were detoxified, there was a reduction of about a third of um, suicides in the UK overall. Um, and and you know deaths by gas poisoning were about a third of suicides at that point. So it really it really made a big difference. Uh, the introduction of catalytic converters has also been linked to reductions. Um, in suicides. Um, we know we, there's some pretty strong evidence in relation to barriers and fencing at um, bridges or railway locations. We're talking about, you know, preventing up to 90% of suicides where uh, some structures of this sorts have been introduced. And we also have evidence that substitution, in other words, evidence that people are then using different methods instead, it is quite minimal. Um, There's evidence in relation to the restriction uh, of analgesics. Um, So we know that there's there's quite strong evidence that, um, for example, in the UK, when there was um, some restrictions to pack sizes of paracetamol were introduced, um, there was quite a substantial decrease um, in deaths by that method. Um, There's been an estimate that it it was nearly a 1,000 deaths that were prevented in the 11 years after those restrictions were changed the legislation were introduced. there's more recent evidence from Denmark suggesting the same thing. pesticides I know we we'll, we'll, we'll discuss more um, we'll say more about pesticides later but again there's quite strong evidence that uh, reducing um, the availability um, of toxic pesticides can make a real difference. Um, and and in relation to firearms, um, the evidence is slightly more mixed, but again, there's quite there's you know quite strong evidence that reducing um, physical access to guns can make a real difference to suicide rates. That said, we also have evidence that um, means restriction doesn't necessarily work for all in all cases or in the same way. We know that in some regions there's evidence that um, substitution is relatively minimal. and In other regions, uh, there is more evidence of substitution. Um, We know, for example, that uh, men are more likely, at least in relation to some methods, to use a different method compared to women. Those reasons are not very well understood and maybe we can discuss later some of the limitations of the evidence in that context. What we do know is that means restrictions tends to work better when it's supported by local communities, by cross-sectoral work. And and ideally when we're talking about sort of universal distal measures, measures that are introduced and and enforced at a kind of policy um, legal level rather than ones that rely on individuals or small communities to, to act and to implement them. The other thing that I think it's important to say is that um, it's not always feasible and, for example, not in relation to all methods, it's feasible to to implement means restrictions. Um, Hanging is an example of that, particularly in the community, it's it's been quite difficult to think about how one might restrict access to hanging. but that's where it's important to say that actually it's not just about reducing the physical access to particular means of suicide. Actually, reducing the cognitive availability and the sort of social cultural acceptability of particular methods can be important. So where we can't um, reduce access to hanging in in such a sort of easy way as we might be able to for some for some other methods. And thinking very carefully about what information is available in the media, for example, can be uh, pretty powerful in this context. I mean, we we know there's an example um, from Vienna, from the um, from the 80s, where changing the reporting of uh, suicides in the metro and being really careful about following guidelines seemed to reduce suicides by that method by 80 percent. And so I think. Sometimes where it's not feasible to reduce physical access, let's think very carefully about also reducing the sort of cognitive availability and thinking carefully about how we talk about suicide and suicide methods.
0: In many ways, it feels like a kind of success story in mental health research terms, in the wider context, in that there's evidence that we can do things And we have done those things and they've made a difference. And we've done them quite quickly in some cases. Um, So, you know, in terms of creating high quality evidence that answers questions and implementing it at the front line, it feels like this area is one where we've actually got a lot of traction and a lot of positivity. Um, So we'll come back to that and some of the complexity around that later on. But, yeah, I wanted to bring in Dee now um, and ask where the gaps are in our knowledge, D, and also what you think the priorities are for future research?
3: I mean, as with any field of research, I think there are lots of gaps. Um, but for me, in terms of sort of the priority areas, um, I think one of the things we need to think about carefully is how um, we might be able to tackle this issue that um, Lisa just po- um, pointed to, the issue of sort of Um, suicide by hanging and how we might tackle that in terms of sort of means restriction. It's quite a difficult method, um, um, and it isn't really that amenable to um, methods restriction because, or means restriction because it's a readily available method. It's not in the general population. Restricting physical access is is quite difficult. So we might need to take more innovative approaches to um, restricting access. Uh, to those methods and that might be by taking uh, potentially a slightly risky approach um, which would be to sort of reduce the cognitive availability of it so Lisa touched on how we might do that by ensuring that the media don't report on the method and make that sort of a a culturally socioculturally acceptable means or for for sort of um, suicide but you could also take the approach of um, potentially highlighting the Unpleasant. Um, I mean, there's lots of unpleasant aspects of hanging, um, but, you know, these sort of unpleasant physical aspects uh, that are related to hanging. And that might um, reduce the uptake of this method by people who are in uh, feeling sort of extreme distress it's a risky approach. Um, it needs a lot of uh, rigorous research to kind of really evaluate whether that's a, an approach you want to take. But it, you know, in a, in a situation where we don't have uh, a way of tackling this particular issue, uh, that might be the way we need to go. Other areas in which we might want to focus uh, our research activities might be, um, for me, I think is uh, something to do with exploring, understanding, and exposing the um, commercial interests there are in suicide prevention and suicide prevention research. The research that we could do maybe might be thinking about um, finding out how, you know, various commercial interests might be interacting with suicide prevention research and activities. But more importantly, how do we counteract that? You know, how do we sort of um, push back against those um, effects? And how do we do it effectively? And then lastly, I think there's a real importance um, of surveillance in um uh, means restriction research. You know, without knowing what the means are, it's almost impossible for us to do anything about. Uh, restricting access. So understanding what methods are being used um, is an important area for suicide prevention research, but also um, having good surveillance systems worldwide, not just in high income, but in many diverse settings to identify emerging methods as they as they come out um, and respond to those appropriately. Um, because without that sort of surveillance system, we won't really be able to respond as we need to and as effectively as we could
0: so let's let's take an example let's take one of the success stories of suicide means restriction and uh, your work D um, looks at pesticides um, tell us the story of pesticides and the work that's happened and where we are currently with that
3: I mean, I won't take all the credit for uh, the work in pesticides. Much of it happened before I even started on the scene. Um, but uh, Sri Lanka, I guess, is, is where I work. And the Sri Lankan story uh, with pesticides is, is a dramatic and a promising story in terms of suicide prevention, where um, in the in the 80s, um, there was a real problem in Sri Lanka with uh, very, very high suicide rates. Um, uh, arguably um had the highest suicide rate in the world, um, was uh, in this sort of um small teardrop shaped island in, in, in the sort of in the Indian Ocean. And um one of the things that uh was really remarkable in Sri Lanka was that um the efforts in uh, reducing this uh Suicide rate in Sri Lanka was really um, championed by not necessarily just the health um, sector, but also um, the agricultural sector, the sort of pesticide registrar that there was a coalition that formed in Sri Lanka um, that came together in sort of the 80s, 90s to reduce the access of toxic pesticides in the country um, as a means of reducing the ill health effects that are associated with it, one of them being, um, you know, this high rate of suicide. And so there there was a series of pesticide bans that were introduced, uh, culminating sort of in in the uh, mid 90s, we saw this dramatic drop in the suicide rate in the country. So, so dramatic that recently I did some modeling to kind of estimate, you know, how many lives potentially were saved by these bans. And the estimate is 93,000 lives. I mean, that's, it's, it's an astonishing number. Um, And, you know, we've, we've sort of done all the kind of methodological things you would do to sort of test it. But that, that number is, is, it's a fairly robust number in terms of, um, an estimate of how many lives we we have saved in Sri Lanka. This evidence now is being taken up um, by the WHO, but, it has taken a long time, um, and a number of other countries have implemented similar kind of bans and have shown similar effects—you know, large reductions in suicide rates, um, both in overall and the pesticide-specific suicide rates. So, which which kind of further um, provides evidence that you know method substitution, people taking up another method, doesn't doesn't really happen um, to the same degree as as you would expect.
0: And I guess when you've got such a big problem at the starting point, you said such high levels internationally um, and concerted cross-sectoral activity that goes on to try and solve that problem, then you've got a lot of potential for success. How how can we kind of of compare that to other methods um, and other cross-sectoral work that's gone on? Lisa or Anne, do you want to come in and Cite another example of that kind of work that's maybe had less success.
1: Barriers on on bridges, you know, we know they we know they work. Lisa talked about that, but to erect barriers on bridges has a cost, but also and it has a cost in terms of a monetary cost, but also communities and designers have aesthetic values about. what a a bridge looks like. There's also issues when you put barriers up about how safe it then feels to walk across. You know, there are wider concerns than, than suicide prevention. But one of the things that it also entails is that bridges over roads, bridges over rivers, bridges and roads, they're all in different government departments. And so, whereas, Gave a really good example of where you have to bring different ministries together. You also have to bring different government departments and communities together to agree these interventions. But once you do that, um, things can move very fast on the one hand. So so in Wales, there was a lot of commitment from a lot of government departments, which, which meant so two things happened. One was that the, the Welsh Suicide Prevention Strategy was included in building regulations, which was meant to highlight very early on in the process before you start designing your bridge to think to have to think about suicide prevention. And two, um, myself as a suicide prevention researcher. But also um, the Samaritans and government departments met with architects before they even started the process of designing bridges. So I think that I think it can take time for these things to happen, but once you start building those collaborations, they, they, they start spreading into other sectors and also the stage at which you can intervene.
0: Tell us a bit about the challenges of those sorts of conversations then, because it strikes me that, you know, over the last 20 years, the way we talk about mental health and suicide is, you know, radically different from how it was. Presumably you're often coming up against ignorance within those departments or those kind of sectors from people who don't know what this thing is and don't really have any interest in it. How do you kind of move people towards a position which is... More understanding?
1: So although I think we have improved the sort of stigma associated with suicide so people you know I think those conversations do happen a bit more than when I first started in this area it's still a really difficult topic for people so when you're going into you know areas where people aren't thinking about it so I think for those of us that work in the field we talk about these issues a lot and, and we don't feel uncomfortable at all. I think absolutely, definitely you can walk into rooms of people whose, you know, their, their job is about, you know, developing road networks or designing a bridge. It It's not an immediately easy topic for them to engage with but I think everyone engages with the idea of, you know, saving lives and supporting people in distress. So I think it's, it's making sure that you have that overarching principle of what you're all here to come together to change. And then once you do that, you know, you, I can remember one conversation where you, where you could see for architects who, who really are driven, they were, they were driven by the function and aesthetics of their bridge. But then once we'd made that case, you could, you, could, you could almost see how enthusiastically they were embracing, you know, it was almost another problem to solve. You know, how do I deliver the things I have to deliver, but also keep it safe? So I think it's 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 developing those overarching messages that everyone can get behind.
0: want to talk a bit about the quality of the evidence and we, you know, we've spoken a bit about what we know and what the gaps might be and what some of the priorities might be. And Dee's spoken about the pesticide work, which is, you know, high quality, randomised controlled trial and natural experiment evidence. But the evidence is often very, very flaky in this field, or sometimes there are reviews that are done that highlight there is no evidence, no randomised evidence at least. so can we talk a bit about the type of evidence that we have in suicide means restriction and when it's possible to do different types of studies and how certainty comes about? Lisa, you've spoken a bit about we know that this works.
1: Broadly
2: speaking, we know that it works with, <laughs> with caveats and with um you know, it's important to say for for some areas. Uh, you know, the example, as you said, uh, pesticide. The work that Dee has been involved is is an example of you know really high quality evidence, randomised controlled trials, which are you know um, held to be the best evidence for this sort of thing, or evidence of effectiveness. Uh, but in relation to other methods and in other contexts, we we have studies that are sort of before and after studies and so you know there aren't um, there isn't a comparison group we're just looking for example what happens at a particular bridge before or after the erection of barriers Um, and you know the findings of these studies are very promising but we've got to bear in mind that that evidence has some limitations and one of the things I'm very interested in as well is, is that really in terms of one of the things that we're interested in for um a means restriction is understanding the extent to which there is substitution to other methods. Now we know that at aggregate level we can look at whether reduction in suicide by a particular method is associated or not with increases in suicide by other methods or we could look at what happens in the you know suicides in general in a particular region but we don't know what's happening to specific individuals so we don't really understand that an individual level what it means to seek access to a particular method and not and have that that access prevented restricted delay in some way and and i think understanding that process better is very important what kind of research
0: would you do to understand that better qualitative research
2: i think that'd be really important i mean i think and um, there is quite a lot that we can do. Actually, we can do data linkage studies so we can see what happens. For example, I mean, I've been working with the rail industry for a few years now and uh, we've been analysing um uh, data in relation to suicide attempts and crisis interventions at malware locations, as well as as well as suicides, and I think it'd be really important to actually to understand what happens afterwards to the people who receive some kind of crisis intervention. Um, in the longer term. So we need some sort of longitudinal studies and we we need to be able to link ideally to other data sets, you know, beyond the rail context, because one thing is understanding what happened, whether people then present again to the railways as being in crisis. Um, But if we don't know whether they present in other settings as being in crisis, that only tells us a very partial part of the picture. But I think some good qualitative research would be important. Um, very important, and to explore that in relation to, to, to actually understand people's experiences of it. And and that's also important because we need to think about the risks and the unintended consequences of restricting um, means. I mean, I, I think that, you know, there is a risk of saying, this works, um, and, and not thinking about actually, for, you know, even if for a minority of people it might not work, is there a risk, for example, for, in relation to some methods of, of um, restricting access to a, a means of suicide, and then that person potentially using more lethal means of suicide. And, um, you know, so what are the unintended consequences? How does that work? And, and and I think that process of consultation, that more sort of qualitative research can help us plan means restrictions in a you know kind of co-designed way, if you want. The other thing perhaps worth saying as well is that there are lots of areas and interventions, including mean restrictions, ones for which we, we just don't have much evidence. You know, we don't really know what's happening. You know, there was a Cochrane review looking at uh, means restrictions in relation to roads And there were just no studies included. There was just no evidence. So we we do need more evidence for, you know, having just spoken about how important it is to have sort of cross-sectoral collaborations, the support of the community, support of legislators, of policymakers, industry, of of, uh, the, the commercial sector, et cetera. We need evidence for those conversations and to persuade, if you want, people that it's worth uh, putting in particular interventions in particular locations in particular ways.
0: So, is that an issue about cross-sectoral funding? When you've got an area where there's so many different potential organisations that could be responsible for it, and what, what what's your view on the fact that there's so little research in certain areas?
1: Two prongs. So, so with the uh, Cock review that Lisa was um, referring to, it was about means restriction in relation to roads now i guess one of the reasons there's not a lot of research is because one that's difficult to do and then the other reason it draws on something that Dee said in that actually at the moment we're not very good at counting because the focus with fatalities on the road is so often about accidents mm-hmm. we're not good at counting you know, what is the problem? And if you don't know what the the problem is, it's difficult to identify where it's happening. So there was a real strong um, recommendation in that review uh, where we said, basically, we need to invest in ensuring that people are trained to recognize when this is, is the cause of a fatality on the road. And then, We found no studies at all, it was an empty review, but there there are lots of studies out there trying to prevent pedestrian fatalities due to accidents, and also collisions that are to do with road design, car design, all those sorts of types of interventions. And some of those are really translatable to means restriction and suicide prevention. But at the moment, I think in certain areas, it's it's not something that that people think about or know about. And so there is a lot of work to be done, one, to highlight it as an issue, you know, in, in certain fields. And then I think the funding issue is important as well. You know, like you say, if you've got lots of different sectors involved and lots of Um, you know, and where you're not able to talk about how you're going to do a a trial that's going to absolutely answer this question. You know, getting funding is much harder. And that translates into funding these interventions. Because if a a barrier or something is is the responsibility of of different organisations and uh, government departments... There's that extra step where everyone's agreeing, where's the funding coming from? Whose responsibility is it? And that's an extra barrier to, to making these sorts of interventions happen outside the sorts of where you legislate for restricting access.
3: One of the things I think uh, we shouldn't really... Uh, ignore is that you know we don't always need RCT evidence and and you know we, we've sort of highlighted that but you know one of the simplest ways of of evaluating some of these um, interventions is um, by natural experiments and that's you know where we've got the strongest evidence for pesticide restrictions you know where you know something has happened nationally and we looked before or after and then seen an effect uh, and you could you know I, I know that they've done similar. I've done similar things in looking at the impact of some of the the um, things that have been done with the rails uh, rail suicide deaths in the UK. So you could look at sort of a natural experiment design in order to kind of evaluate some of these things. Um, what I didn't mention before was the the work I was talking about with pesticide uh, restrictions in suicide um, in in Sri Lanka. Rather was. Uh, with regard to national policies, and that was that natural experiment design. The RCT work is actually something different. The RCT work, which involved, um, you know, uh, a large number of uh, households. So we had um, fifty four thousand households, two hundred thousand people involved in, you know, in this study, and that study that took seven years to conduct. Um, the outcome of that, which was to uh, the, the intervention itself, was uh, restricting access to lethal means by providing locked boxes, um, locked boxes to households that uh, had access to pesticides, in order to reduce that sort of, you know, when there's a a, a, a crisis they don't get access to these lethal means to see how, what impact that had on uh, suicide rates. And actually what we found after seven years of work and you know, millions of pounds was that actually that intervention doesn't work. So this is an instance where, you know, if we're talking about there's there's an importance of the level at which you introduce means restriction. You know, if, you, if you're introducing means restriction at that level for pesticide, it doesn't seem to work. Uh, But if you introduce it at sort of a national level, it does appear to work. In relation to that, I wonder if I can wave another flag for qualitative
2: research (laughs) in the sense of um, how important it is that uh, these interventions are evaluated, but that we have process evaluations as well as outcome evaluations, because we need to know what's working and how and what's not working, because there are examples. I mean, Uh, Dee Dee knows much more about the details of this huge RCT (laughs) that unfortunately didn't have the results that we'd hoped. But I mean, I know in relation, for example, to the railways, we know barriers, we know screens and gates are very effective for reducing suicides. But we also know that if those gates are left open, they are useless (laughs) or close to useless. And we need research that actually explores how things are being implemented as well as whether they're working, because otherwise we're only getting part of the picture and we risk um, writing something off or embracing something
1: when we shouldn't. And I think that really highlights that sort of RCT evidence versus natural experiment. You know, an RCT creates these perfect environments to test something. A natural experiment is looking at what happens in the real world, but it also means that when we're trying to you know for, particularly for certain sorts of means restriction we have to be really culturally aware and we have to understand what things mean in different countries so you know recently with covid and black lives matter in america there's been a, a lot of headlines about increased gun purchases and then on top of those there's been a lot of speculation about whether what that what impact that will have on suicide rates, you know, and that goes back to to what Dee and Lisa were saying about cognitive availability. So making that as a method of suicide in a very difficult global circumstance. What you realize if you work in the field is is that people's A lot of people who buy guns already have guns in the home. So there's been studies that show that 40% of young people who live in homes with firearms have easy access to that. So even if they're buying more guns, when you're thinking about who's exposed, what you're really interested in is new guns. You know, what households who didn't have guns in the house before have guns now, and because we don't have, and this goes back to the whole surveillance and counting. Because we don't have, um, well, in the US they don't have a national register. We don't know the answers to those things, so we don't we don't know how many households are exposed to firearms. So I think as as well as doing these sorts of studies where we assess interventions, when you're making the strength of argument about how much these should happen, you need to understand the volume of the issue and how many people are exposed. So there's a lot of room for improving the evidence base here that I think all three of us have covered.
0: you've touched there on on guns um and i guess guns and pesticides both have a big sort of commercial interest a big lobbying what how how um disruptive is that to the work that you do
3: it can be quite disruptive so you know the 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 evidence from sri lanka in terms of these natural experiments for um you know but which showed you know nationals of the toxic pesticides that are available in the country can reduce the number of suicide deaths. And I I have to say, actually, one of the things I I find really quite... um, irritating and anger inducing is that you know many of the toxic pesticides that we find in lower middle income countries um that that are being imported in are actually being exported from countries where those pesticides have been banned over concerns over human health so the uk is an example of that so we have um the uk producing the uh Pesticide that um, I won't say the name of it, but the pesticide that accounts for a large number of suicide deaths. And they are exporting large quantities of this to lower middle income countries. Um, and to me, that double standard is, is quite difficult to, um, to sort of stomach. But that's that's not that's kind of a, a, an additional side issue. But the issue um, in terms of trying to get the research evidence we know works implemented has been quite challenging because there's commercial interests involved at sort of so many levels. So for the pesticide industry, um, they have been funding suicide prevention research and suicide prevention activities through the WHO, through the International Association for Suicide Prevention for a number of years. And now, you know, if that that sort of um, funding was happening by, say, Tobacco industry for cancer research, you know, we would have huge issues with that, and um, because you know, how can you sort of unpick commercial interests and sort of interests related to sort of ensuring that we reduce a, a number of sort of you know suicide deaths, um, and because these these interests have been kind of involved in sort of uh, you know the sort of IASP and with WHO, it means that even if we produce high quality evidence showing that actually these interventions that are targeted at an individual level, which obviously if you introduce um locked box storage devices at a household level, you're not reducing the number of sales for a pesticide. You're reducing access at that level. So you're kind of shifting the ownership, the sort of responsibility for making sure that somebody doesn't die by suicide to the household. Um, And that doesn't impact on commercial interests. But if you ban a pesticide, you obviously, there's going to be impacts um, to the commercial companies and, and, and those tensions have played out for a number of years now. And I and thankfully now there's been a recognition of it and we're sort of moving forward and the WHO have finally sort of taken up, um, trying to sort of uh, recommend that, you know, toxic pesticides are banned, but it's been a long and difficult journey. Um, And I don't think one that we have sort of quite finished yet because there are still large randomized control trials that are being um, done, which, um, are trying to find ways in which we could reduce access to toxic pesticides by storage in communities, which I don't think is the approach that we need to be taking at this point, knowing that actually we have uh, evidence that shows that banning those pesticides are much more effective Um, and waiting for trial evidence to come out in another seven years time means that there will be so many more lives lost. So that that's the tension for me, and I'm getting quite sort of <laughs> agitated by talking about this. But that uh, the tent, there are some real tensions there, and I think these tensions are also being played out in sort of the uh, in a similar field in terms of sort of gun lobbying and gun um, the, the gun industry. But I don't have as much uh, experience of that um, to sort of talk about. But perhaps the others might.
2: More than that, when you were talking, I was thinking about, well, a lot, uh, and and what a powerful and important point. Um, But also about this issue of shifting the responsibility to individuals. I mean, Anne mentioned earlier as well, sometimes, you know, we we talk about means safety more than means restriction effectively. And we sort of involve clinicians, involve family members, involve individuals themselves to sort of restrict the access that a particular individual might have to, to lethal means. And I think that's an area when we think about evidence, that's an area that we could do a bit more work on to think about and how that works and I think that needs more of a lived experience voice actually on on what's helpful and and what could on the contrary be potentially quite dangerous I mean even the fact that you know the very language of means restriction is one that there's some evidence that actually people at the receiving end of this in terms of being at sort of potentially at risk of suicide don't find particularly helpful and if anything some people I mean I I I um examined some work of suicides in and uh, suicide attempts in, in forensic uh, mental health hospitals where some of the women interviewed as part of the study it actually felt quite unsafe at the thought that, you know, that some of the potential means of suicide that they had access to would be taken away from them. I'm not saying that means we don't take away those things, but thinking about how we talk about that even is very important. And because how we talk about it potentially is is part of making those kind of more um, individual-based kind of means, restriction, means safety interventions more effective.
1: It's a really difficult term. People don't like it at all. And where they don't have feelings about the term, they often don't understand what it means. You know, so that initial bit where we've talked about what means restriction is, I think is really important because as a term, means restriction for suicide prevention, I think if you're outside the field, either doing research or practicing, it doesn't mean anything. And then as soon as you start going on about physical means, and cognitive means I think you really have lost people yeah. so but then when you try to explain it simply it, it can feel challenging I
0: mean it's a really difficult conversation to have for so many different reasons partly because it's really as you say quite inaccessible unless you're an expert but also I think because we're all really justifiably paranoid that if you talk about suicide means, methods of suicide in a public space, then you're potentially going to cause harm. What do you think we need to do to make it possible to have constructive conversations about this that can actually have a positive impact on people's lives?
2: I think there are lots of conversations about this that don't need detail of the methods. Um, I think, I hope, we've, we've had a conversation now for... An hour uh, and hopefully haven't given details of any specific location the name of particular medication etc and I think that that can be quite important really I mean it means we can have conversations but we can have them in a safe way and I know we're very focused on how the media how the news reports suicides for example because there's there's a lot of evidence going back about 50 years that that can have you know they can be Imitation, Um, you know, particularly if it's a celebrity suicide. There was a study published earlier this year in the BMJ showing that um, reporting of a celebrity suicide was associated with a 13% increase in other suicides, a 30% increase of suicides by the same method when details of that method were included in the report. That's the sort of thing that makes you think, okay, let's just not give detail of the methods when it's not necessary. And, and I think sometimes I wonder whether we need to apply those same criteria more widely and, and include and think about researchers and policymakers and how we disseminate our evidence, particularly now that there is, you know, a focus importantly on open access. And if we, you know, if we think about the, the, gu- the guidelines by which the media should be reporting suicide, I think to, uh, to wonder whether we need to apply those to academic research, Or or think at least of how we restrict access to that information because it could be dangerous.
1: It's a really challenging area. So I know um, everyone in the field, there are uh, pieces of work that we do that, you know, so usually people hear about work through press releases from universities. So there are definitely uh, published research that that my team and I'm, I'm sure Dean Lisa's have done where you don't do a press release. You know, you need to do the study because you need the evidence there to make the changes and to make those arguments to policy and the people who can make a difference. But sometimes when you think about, I think particularly in the reporting of studies, it's not necessarily. It's it's not necessary always to have a press release and make a big hoo-ha in the press. Now, I think talking about means restriction. In I think even in this sort of setting where you don't have, can you know, we know that you're very the mental health is very responsible in the way it disseminates its material, but sometimes you're having conversations about means restrictions where you don't know who the who's in the audience you don't know their vulnerabilities you don't know where that will go and then sometimes you know i've experienced in in some of my work people will ask you about particular locations in public settings so it it can be you, i i always feel that you're constantly making judgments about how much you will say I think particularly about method and location both when you're talking in a research context but also um, in other environments
0: there's this kind of tension isn't there between communicating things clearly so that clinicians or policymakers or whoever can actually see the reliable science and make decisions based on it and being really careful about not saying anything because you're worried about causing harm and it strikes me that that's an almost impossible tension to kind of <laughs> reconcile, because I guess the way that we communicate science now is, as Lisa says, it's very open. You know, we're driving towards open science, open access. We use social media to communicate our work. And policymakers love it because they can get really ready access to stuff. But everybody else has access to it as well. That's a big dilemma, isn't it?
1: And you think so carefully about the language that you use. Yeah. And the caveats that you have to put around your findings.
0: Yeah.
2: We have data from a, quite a large survey of people talking about the, the reasons why they've considered and used particular methods and discarded them. And I sat on those data for a very long time, not for the usual reasons of just getting involved in lots of other things, but actually because of the ethical dilemma, I just didn't know what to do. I thought this whole paper is about what methods people are using and why. And you know where could this go and how could it be used? And it it took a lot of thinking before I drafted it in the way that I did, and a lot of consulting with people. And you know, so some of the advice I was given was around not having a press release when it's finally in press, etc., etc. But it's it's very difficult. The, the way I think of it, and sometimes I do the same when I read other people's work, is I think right. If I was judging this as a news report, would I find it to be lacking? Um, in terms of, you know, or irresponsible in any way in how it's reporting suicide.
1: So we're doing a suite of, you know, a whole series of reviews on means restriction. Um, And as we've published them, there's always an editorial discussion about, you know, have we reported studies that talk about particular locations? Is it okay to have it in? I think the most we can do is be careful and responsible and also ask widely you know don't just rely on your own assessment of how difficult what you're talking about is but there's also a responsibility for the evidence to be there for people to act upon
0: do you think there's there's systemic things that we can do to change how publishing works how dissemination works that will make it easier for you to get your evidence out there to the people who need it
2: it's tricky because I, at the same time I struggle a bit with the idea of restricting access to evidence to a particular group you know I sort of that's that's part of the issue isn't it it's sort of deciding who who can read a particular evidence or have access to or not um it doesn't feel terribly democratic, does it? And I think, you know, as we're highlighting more important, more and more, how important it is to have people with lived experience involved in these discussions. It's sort of at the same time going back to saying, actually, you can't see this because you're you're too vulnerable, and and I'm not sure that that's
1: really the way forward either. There's a fine line between being careful and looking like you're hiding something. So my feeling is 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 you. I think we need to ensure that early career researchers, that people in the field, that university press departments, that everyone's aware of what the issues are and then understand that it's always a judgment.
2: And maybe, I mean, I know this is a sort of wider issue, so sorry if I go off on a tangential rant, but, you know, when we think about ethics in relation to our research and we think very carefully about ethics course and and but much of the um much of the focus even that you know the the questions we're asked effectively are about how we're collecting data in a safe way and it's very much at the early stages it's the data collection we need more about the ethics of dissemination I think
1: you know that's probably a podcast in itself (laughs) (laughs) there is a pressure when you do a press release to have a hook You know, that's how press releases work. Which means that nobody's very interested in all the careful language or caveats that you put in it. And I don't think you just see that in suicide prevention. I think you see that across the board. So, yeah, there probably is work where we could think about how we disseminate and make research accessible.
3: I think there's also a step back from that as well from from what I've experienced reading lots of the emerging articles in terms of COVID nineteen and you know suicide and and that kind of thing. You you're getting a lot of people who have little or no experience in suicide prevention research who've started to kind of engage with this field because it's, you know, becoming an emerging issue in the areas that they're working in. And I've read several articles where, you know, the means of suicide, uh, you know, journalistic style report um, has been published in an academic journal. And I don't know if it's gone through peer review or whatever else, but perhaps there's also a need for journals and publishers to have a set of rules around how they might report and you know uh, the advice they give to researchers in terms of um, the way that they sort of present their findings or present the point that they're trying to make because I think there is a real danger there as well because if it's a, a lot of the things I've seen have been these research letters which obviously are designed to get out there quickly in a time where you know evidence people are sort of clamouring to get evidence out there Um, the the sort of the the unfortunate side effect of that is that you know journalists also get hold of these articles and perhaps they might then be using the, the exact same terminology that's been used which i've found quite difficult to read um in in sort of much more wider widely published um papers
1: absolutely so we're doing so with the university of bristol and a number of other universities were doing a living systematic review of the impact of um, the pandemic on suicide and self-harm. And, you know, there's a whole discussion to be had about preprints. So the, the I don't know, the, the reporting of evidence that hasn't has yet to be peer-reviewed And then also the reporting of letters, as you say Dee, that that are often reported as this was published in this extremely prestigious journal, but it's actually a letter. So it's never been peer reviewed. And so I think think you're completely right. It's a very emotive subject. And I think sometimes that's why, uh, you know, you know, we have to acknowledge that people will make mistakes in this area. And it really is a, an issue of education and to keep raising the profile of being careful about how you talk about it, because there is a potential for harm without vilifying um, the people who, who get it wrong. I remember when I first started working in the field, how I used to just have a running second commentary in my head of things not to say. And and so it's it's a really, really challenging area, but I do think highlighting that difference between what is evidence, what is opinion, what's peer-reviewed, what isn't, and yeah. what, and what papers is important.
2: Sorry to interrupt, but yes, what evidence needs to be out there, because going back to means restrictions, I mean, some of the papers in very prestigious journals about means restrictions have an online appendix that tell you not just how effective the intervention was, but what the lethality rate for that particular method is. Now, if we saw that in a... um site online, we'd be horrified and we'd be arguing that it should be shut down because it's unhelpful information. So I, I, I'm with D in the sense, do we, you know, editors also perhaps need to be on board and thinking about what what needs to be published or not? I think at a practical level, on the whole, lethality rates or something in relation to specific methods are something I don't think is particularly helpful to um, to publish because you know there, there are so many caveats and there are so many different circumstances. I mean, I think that the idea that a particular method has a specific locality ratio, it, it depends on so many things, it's a bit meaningless. Um, and and you know, and the, the academic literature is full of descriptions of methods as being violent, non-violent, highly lethal, et cetera, et cetera. And I just think we need, just need to be a bit careful with that.
3: I mean, we we've taken steps with the sort of uh, the commit suicide terminology of of trying to sort of get editors on board with um, ensuring that they, you know, they know what the evidence has said and um, that, you know, they're actively encouraging that people avoid that term if they do talk about suicide. So that's part of the author's guidelines. So I think there is, there is, room for us to improve in terms of kind of editors taking on some of the responsibility of ensuring that they do no harm by the papers that they end up publishing uh whether it be actual academic papers or letters or correspondence or whatever else it is i think there is a responsibility that needs to be taken by editors and, and sort of publishers
1: stigma plays a part in all those conversations with people so i um was involved in a study led by an early career researcher looking at suicide in people with epilepsy. Now the headline that happened in the newspaper involved the words commit suicide and epileptics, all of which you do not want to see in headlines. And the early career researcher contacted the editor of You know, it's a widely circulated paper. And a lot of us sort of aged researchers were a bit like, good luck with that. <laughs> but they did change the headline to people with epilepsy, but they wouldn't change to commit suicide. <laughs> Gosh. And I think some of that is is about people's discomfort and the stigma and the, you know, it's almost like you don't want to deal with something because it's so stigmatised, so it's better to just leave it over there in its box. I still think that's a lot of work in that area.
0: My thanks to Anne John, Lisa Mazzano and Dee Nipe for taking the time to record this discussion. Thanks also to Jess Hendon from the Cochrane Common Mental Disorders Group for commissioning this work. You can find out more about the Cochrane Reviews mentioned in the podcast by visiting their website at cmd.cochrane.org. And if you have a mental health research conversation that you want to reach a wider audience, why not drop us a line at The Mental Health and tell us about it?